It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is The Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation, and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Today, we are very honored to be joined by Dr. Emily Kybert. She is a dedicated chiropractor, movement specialist, and strength enthusiast. What sets her apart is her remarkable journey of reversing Hashimoto's, which ignited her passion for helping women with the condition. Driven by the belief that every woman with Hashimoto's can feel strong and confident in her body, she empowers and guides them on their path to wellness. Her expertise lies in teaching women struggling with Hashimoto's how to exercise effectively, shed unwanted weight, and conquer fatigue, enabling them to show up at their best for the, for the people who matter most in their lives. With that said, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We're really honored to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So I love jumping right in and asking a little bit about your story. I know I read a little bit about it, but just, you know, what really motivated you to get into this field? Yeah. So I've been a chiropractor since 2007, doing a lot of biomechanical rehab, strength work. And after I had my son in 2016, in January, you know, like all the new mom symptoms of exhaustion and hair falling out and can't lose the baby weight were there and present. And all my friends were like, yeah, you just had a baby. It's normal. Well, 18 months postpartum, my kid's running around, right? And <laughs> and starting to talk and starting to ride his bike, I still felt all those symptoms. And I was like, this cannot be postpartum. This cannot be my new normal. I had a very challenging time with some histamine issues and eczema that we can get into as well as some brain fog and, you know, running a clinic with a team of 10 and a oh, new wow. baby and trying to, you know, lose the baby weight um, and all the things. You can imagine that having brain fog, having eczema on your hand, being extremely fatigued, like hit by a bus fatigue is not how you want to move through the world, right? And so I kind of got fed up uh, around 18 months and was like, okay, there's got to be a better way. And went down the conventional path of a primary care endocrinologist, actually two functional medicine docs, and then landed on my third, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who is my doctor today. She's like, yeah, a ton of blood. And she's like, well, you have an autoimmune condition. How come no one's tested? How, how come no one's not uh, tested more than TSH? And I was like, I don't know. I just want to feel better. So that was kind of that journey into that foray of functional medicine, eating differently, training differently, which we can talk about, um, and then identifying some root causes. That's awesome. I mean, and yeah. Took about 12 months to go into remission. So labs are within normal range, don't have a presence of symptoms, stayed in remission through a second pregnancy. Pregnancy oh, wow. can be a stressor. So a lot of yeah. women who are in remission can flare up um, during a second pregnancy. And yeah, still good to this day. So that was 2017 and, you know, now it's 2023. So, so like what I was, what I was wanting to get at was just that short timeline. It seems like 
you kind of found it pretty quick and reversed it pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm lucky because it was identified early. It was probably in the making since like 2013 of, you know, living in a moldy apartment and going through some breakups and different stressors because with Hashimoto's, it is more than just genetics. There is a leaky gut component and then there's stressors. Um, So I'm also of the type, like you tell me to do something and I will do it. Just give me the game plan and I'll execute. I'm not very wishy-washy. Sometimes women I work with are like, well, I want to have four pieces of pizza. It's like, well, (laughs) let's talk about gluten again. So, you know, whatever plan Gabrielle gave me, I was like, okay, let's do it. Even if it made me feel worse temporarily, I knew that I was on a path to getting better and I didn't question it. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, just for anybody who's struggling, when you are given a plan, you know, just taking your health into your own hands, taking the journey, you have to, because you don't want to just sit there and be like, well, I can do it halfway. Are you going to recover halfway? Are you going to heal halfway? Like you don't want the half product. So you got to, you got to do it all the way. So I really appreciate that. And I'm also a big fan of uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon as well. So it's pretty cool that you, you got to go in with her. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's been a friend since 2016. So, um, and our offices used to be down the street from each other in New York when we were both practicing in New York. So yeah, I think a lot of women just to kind of also set the perspective, they want to get better within like a couple months. And if you think about, okay, well, how long have you actually been feeling sick? Take like half that time that it may, you know, maybe you'll get better faster, but take half that time to kind of give perspective of it may take, like if you've been sick for three years, it might take a year and a half to start to feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Being patient and going all in and and trusting, you know, your medical professional, all good things. Trusting the process. Yep. Yep. So now I want to start diving into, you know, food sensitivities, Hashimoto's, your diet, how you reversed it and just getting into more of the dietary aspects of all of this. Yeah. Which one do you want to start with first? Which question? Wherever. Maybe, Wherever. maybe your personal journey, your personal diet, what you changed as far as your own eating habits and then getting into, you know, why that's so critical for Hashimoto's. Yeah. So I was very New York, right? So I would get up, I'd go to the coffee shop, I'd get a ice cortado and a croissant. So I was like pounding gluten in the morning, totally probably causing some cortisol dysregulation. I would go through the entire day. I'd skip lunch, see patients. And then I'd probably eat like a little bit of skirt steak and some broccoli or some salmon and asparagus at night and go to bed. Um, so under eating can be a stressor on the body. Um, along with all the other stressors. And there were certain things that I was eating that was not best for my body. You know, some of it was brought up in a stool sample, um, like a high anti-gliadin IgA, which is like, are you getting exposed to gluten? So some of the changes I made was prioritizing protein, 30 grams minimum per meal, actually like having a proper breakfast versus just kind of running out the door and... (laughs) using sugar to and coffee to get me through my day, having a proper lunch and dinner. So actually having meals was part of it. Having protein forward meals. Have I was pretty much when I was first diagnosed on like medical grade protein powder. It was like Zymogen pea protein because everything I ate I was reacting to. Histamine response, eczema, my tongue would swell. So part of it was my inflammatory load was so high in addition to some environmental factors involved like mold and parasites that part of it was just dialing down the inflammation. Then it was going on a little bit more of a protein forward diet. And Um, and you didn't react to the pea protein? I didn't because I was reacting to everything. So like- Even meats? Everything. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So- um, because there was so much inflammatory load. Yeah. Yeah. So 
at first it was like two shakes a day trying to get some protein in the morning and then kind of the similar dinner, like protein veg. Yeah. No gluten, no dairy, corn, soy, alcohol, preservatives, trying to minimize sugar too. Yeah. Um, and eventually as we started to work on gut health and started to identify yeah. some root causes, then could transition to at first a carnivore diet mm-hmm. and then more of a paleo diet where it's like protein veg. I don't really eat nightshades. Yeah. So, so yeah. And that was, um, that was probably over a year's time. So I was probably on protein shakes for like three months. And I think the important piece is, you know, changing what you're eating can be step number one. And a lot of people can see a, see a big shift in symptoms, whether it's gas, bloating, fatigue, brain fog, losing weight, just like cutting out gluten. And it's not necessarily you're losing fat, you're losing literally inflammatory weight. Yeah. Yeah. Water retention probably. But that's step one. And some people kind of stop there. And next thing you know, all they're eating is like chicken and broccoli and nothing else. And they're like, oh my God, life's so boring because I can't eat anything else because I've eliminated everything. Step two is to start to investigate what is your gut health doing? What's going on in there? Do you have an underlying gut infection, bacterial overgrowth, fungal overgrowth? Is there something going on that's causing this dysbiosis? I'm sure your listeners have heard that word, leaky gut, intestinal hyperpermeability. And then to also look at, are there some environmental triggers that could be contributing to that leaky gut? Examples would be mold, mycotoxins, parasites, heavy metals, xenoestrogens, um, pesticides, all those things. So it's nice to kind of change the dial movers on food first because it is, it's free, right? It is within our control. Then you have to hire a professional to do the other steps. And a lot of people don't do that. And so they kind of get stuck on food or they made some changes and they're like, oh, nothing changed. So I'm going to go back to like pounding croissants in the morning. So yeah, I think it's important to- work on this restrictive diet and they don't even know how to reintroduce anything because once they do, they still get their symptoms because they haven't gotten that gut infection or whatever it is. Exactly. And they're like, oh, I went gluten-free. Why don't I feel better? My doctor told me to go gluten-free and take my thyroid meds. Those are usually- the two recommendations. And it's like, that is like baby step one. And there's like 20 other steps, ideally to do a deep dive and investigate what's going on. Even just shifting from whatever, you know, standard American diet to like protein veg. I got a million questions. (laughs) And I think people aren't used to reading food labels. I don't think they're used to taking the time to cook their food other things get prioritized, work, kids, you know, partner. And while those aspects of life should be prioritized, everything like how your kids are nourished, their behavior, if they go to bed, all those things like your relationship with your partner kind of starts with how you're nourishing your own body and your family's body. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. So what kind of like testing did you do or would you recommend after that initial step? Yeah. So first test, I always like um, blood work, getting a more comprehensive thyroid panel than just a TSH, Um, looking at inflammatory markers, looking at autoimmune markers, lipid panel, an advanced lipid panel, ideally, um, a CBC with a differential. So you can look at what each blood cell, white blood cell is doing chem panel. Um, and that would be like step one. It's just like very comprehensive blood work. Step two to investigate the, the gut and what's going on is you can literally, yeah, you can literally like check markers and see if your gut lining is inflamed. I like the GI map. Other people like, um, vibrant health, Gut Zoomer. Um, there's a couple of them out there. And then to investigate environmental toxins, you you know, the beauty is you don't have to guess, right? You test don't guess. I'm like a big believer in test don't guess. Huge. So yeah. um for mycotoxins, mosaic, 
or Vibrant has a mycotoxin test. They also have a total toxin test where you can look at um, about 175 metabolites from different toxins. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Sometimes I'll look at an organic acid test. Yes. So there's so many different ways to get data. And the more data points you have, some most of the time, the clearer picture of like what direction to go down. Sometimes I think practitioners will order too many tests versus just like really doing a deep dive into someone's history to guide the testing. Because testing is expensive, right? Like a a gut test is like 260, a mycotoxin test with total toxin burden, so like other chemicals is 400, a food sensitivity test is 400. So a parasite test can be up to 1,000. So really getting clear, okay, what's the lowest hanging fruit that we could get someone to start, like the dial movers, we could start getting someone to feel better. And also keeping in mind what are what is someone's financial situation like yeah. could you pinpoint a parasite just by their symptoms versus ordering testing yeah yeah, yeah. so with that said do you kind of drifting back into the diet once mm-hmm. you get these these tests back you know and we didn't even talk about like a SIBO breath test. I don't know if you do any of that or you just kind of use a, a stool test to be like, oh, this makes sense overgrowth wise. Um, but do you cater the diet specifically to like the different test results or is it pretty much the same like low histamine, you know, take out all those um, inflammations like gluten, sugar, stuff like that. Is it pretty much the same? Um, it depends. And it depends on someone's starting point. So I'm working with someone right now who has four pieces of pizza for lunch. She has like this bean casserole that gets microwaved in a plastic wrapper in the morning. So how can we give her wins that don't feel super restrictive and don't make her feel like she's changing her whole life? Also based on personality, right? Like I have people who are like, give it to me, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. Some people are like, well, can I have this, you know, this like protein shake from Costco? And you're like, well, it has like number one ingredients, sugar. So let's make better choices. But I would say everyone, I try to get on more of a paleo-esque eating style. So protein, veg. I think that's really kind of cut and clear. If someone wants to if they're already doing that and they want to investigate further, like, oh, do I react to nightshades, eggplants, peppers, tomatoes? Could I eliminate those for six weeks and do a reintroduction phase? Yeah. In terms of histamine foods or high histamine foods, I'm only minimizing those if someone is in mold exposure, which okay. is way higher than what we think. I think the statistic out there right now is like 70% of homes have water damage and mold, which... It's like terrifying and yeah. probably under <laughs> underreported. Very <laughs> underreported. I mean, I I had exposure. I had SIRS. Yeah. 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 So you know how important like changing the diet is, but it's yeah. only one piece of the puzzle. In terms of SIBO, um, a stool test is not the best way to test for SIBO. A uh, SIBO breath test is the best way to test. If someone um, – is coming back with a positive SIBO test. I look at SIBO as a symptom. So it's kind of similar to candida, right? So SIBO is like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, candida, fungal overgrowth. Well, why are things overgrowing? We should have natural bacteria and fungus in our gut. It's the gut microbiome, but why is it overproducing? So I always ask the why, because I look at SIBO as a symptom versus a diagnosis. And so when I think of SIBO, I'm thinking, okay, do they have um, parasite? Do they have some heavy metal exposure? Do they have some mold exposure? Um, because what happens is people people will be doing these like, maybe they'll do rifaximin, which is the conventional treatment of SIBO. 
and they're good. But then there's like, it comes back in three months and then they're like, well, I don't want to take antibiotics again. So let me just go on a low FODMAP diet and take some supplements. And it keeps reoccurring. Like that, that's a red flag. Like <laughs> let's start looking somewhere else, right? Versus kind of like pounding the same nail with the same hammer. So starting to look at other potential things that could be leading to the bacterial overgrowth or in the term, you know, in the case of candida, leading to that fungal overgrowth. Food can be one dial mover, but again, it's just the first step. Okay. So with that said, what are some of those other triggers, like maybe slow motility caused by, you know, dysautonomia? Like, can we go through a few of those other triggers that could cause that SIBO? And I also, I do like that you kind of approach it from more of a symptom rather than a diagnosis standpoint, because it does make sense. Yeah. So everything is like a why, right? So like, yes, slow motility, being hypothyroid, food moves slower through the digestive tract. Well, now the gut bacteria is just feeding off of it, <laughs> feasting longer, right? So could we correct the slow motility by helping with some digestive enzymes? Do they have slow motility because their thyroid meds are not properly dosed, right? And they're not optimized. Could they have slow motility because a lot of Hashi ladies don't have enough stomach acid. And so therefore their food's not getting digested properly. And it's, you know, like in bigger chunks as it moves through the large intestine and small intestine. Um, do they need some digestive enzyme with some stomach acid, betaine HCL to help support that? So those are some things that could help with motility. But at the end of the day, I'm still asking what else is going on in there um, that is just causing this bacterial overgrowth. Parasites are very underdiagnosed. No one in the States likes to think, oh, I have a parasite. Gross. But yeah. you know, in a lot of developing countries, having a parasite, doing parasite cleanses, giving your kids, you know, a parasite cleanse before they go to school is very, it's like standard. So I think, and a lot of stool tests that use PCR testing, where they're just looking for like, genetic strains of parasites. Yeah. I've had so many miss parasites. And then I'll do a test where there's actually like, um, where they're plating it and looking for ovum and larva. And, you know, then there's like severe load of hookworm and roundworm or something. Oh, else. Gosh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It kind of makes you squeamish. You're like, Ooh, but yeah. you know, better to get it, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and I haven't had a lot of people really talk more in depth about parasites on the podcast. So like if you have any symptoms, common symptoms you see, or um, or even things, treatments that you use commonly to get rid of parasites, I would love to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the functional medicine world is kind of split in parasites. If you're having symptoms, might as well treat it. Some other functional medicine docs think, you know, everyone has parasites. So like, why do some people react? Some people don't. But this kind of, you could say the same thing about mold exposure. You know, we all get exposed to mold. Why do some people totally take some down, becomes a, you know, chronic condition. Um, so there are conventional medications for parasites, um, medication, like, prescribing is outside my scope being a chiropractor, but you know, there's different meds for different kinds of parasites in terms of a more natural approach. I think combining the two is nice because larvae have like their own cycles and a lot of medications are three, four days. And I'm like, someone's had parasites for 20 years and you're going to kill a parasite in like three days with med like, I don't know. It just doesn't like line up. And then when you start to Google, some of these parasites are laying like 20,000, 30,000 eggs a day. And you're like, so these yeah. parasites are like laying 30,000 eggs a day and you're going to kill it in three days after having it for 20 years. I don't know if that like really lines up. And a lot of the medication doesn't kill. I think it's a misconception. It actually starves the parasite of glucose. And then there's this die off and then you're counting on your own digestive tract to poop them out basically. 
Parasites can live in things other than, you know, we just think of them in their gut and our gut. They can come out of the urinary tract. I've had people have a parasite come out of their nose. They can live in your liver, like liver flukes. So they can, they can, you know, be in your bloodstream. So they are more than just in your digestive, digestive tract. I think a lot of us just think it's there. Um, there was just that, um, what was it in Australia? This woman that had like a worm, a parasite living in her brain. Did you see that? That was within the no. last month. I interviewed the surgeon who like took it out. Oh like it's like three inches long. It was so gross. Um, and she was having brain fog, irritability, depression. And you're like, yeah, no wonder. Yeah. In her left temporal lobe. <laughs> so um yeah, I think wow. they're way more common. There are natural cleanses. Um Parafly kit is one of them. It's a 30 day kit. It has some of the antimicrobials like black walnut. Um, yeah. amongst other things. Is that getting rid of all the parasites? No. Is it probably decreasing that parasitic load? Yes. Cellcore has a parasite cleanse. So, you know, some people I know will go the conventional route, sometimes have to do a couple rounds of medication. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll have to combine it with some coffee enemas or some colonics to kind of like pull the parasites out. And then some people are more of like, let me just cleanse, like do a 30-day parasite cleanse around the full moon, you know, a couple times a year. So it really depends on your approach. I think the goal of trying to have no parasites ever is unrealistic unless you're going to never eat sushi, never share your fork with your husband or your kids. Yeah. Never kiss your husband, right? Like never be intimate or have sex, right? Because parasites can get passed that way as well. Um, and if you always cooked all of your meat, well done. I don't know. I don't know if that's that it's like in my life, it's unrealistic to do that. So sure. Yeah. I, mean, I would rather just do like a parasite cleanse like a couple times a year. No, yeah, that makes sense. And did yeah. you was that something that really was pivotal in your Hashimoto's journey early on or was more of like addressing the mold more pivotal? Yeah. I mean, I addressed mold first and then we looked at parasites. Um, I definitely felt way better. The mold was a big dial mover. I'm also like genetically a poor liver detoxifier um, and just very sensitive to mold. And like my dad's sensitive to mold. Like it's, you know, there's some genetic piece there. My kids are sensitive to mold. I would say, um, you know, one of my big symptoms was I had this like patch of eczema on my hand that would come and go with my cycle. And at first I thought it was food, but I couldn't, I would like cut things out and it wouldn't change. And then I, you know, I'd reintroduce things and it wouldn't change. So yeah, I mean, my eczema along with my brain fog and fatigue probably got like 40% better after doing the mold. Um, and that was like a three month protocol, getting in a sauna, like having in New York city to go to an infrared sauna three times a week and sit in there for an hour. Like it was intensive along with binders and supplements and all the things. Um, I would say the parasite, like doing the parasite cleanse kind of cleaned up the rest of the eczema, very common with eczema to potentially have a parasite or mold exposure. Um, yeah, I mean, part of that process was not eating high histamine foods. And now I can eat, like I I had to like cut out avocados and citrus fruits for like probably like three years, four years. And now I can have, you know, if I go to a gluten-free Mexican restaurant, which they have here in Colorado, I can like have the gluten-free chips with the guacamole. And I'm like, oh man, I didn't do this for years. So there is like light at the end of the tunnel. I think some Sometimes we're like, why aren't I better already? So, yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Now, what did that food introduction, reintroduction process look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I had cut it out for so long. Like it wasn't six weeks, right? So a typical elimination diet, you cut out the offenders for six weeks. You introduce one of them for three days because it can take – that long of a delayed reaction. Gotcha. So after six weeks, day one through three, you eat gluten and you see how you feel. Day four through six, you now introduce dairy and you see how you feel. So I didn't do it like that because I had cut out foods for, you know, like 
couple years, like on that healing journey. And I would just kind of try things. So I would like try a bite of my husband's croissant and I'd get a headache within like 30 minutes and I'd feel like take a nap and I get brain fog and irritable. And I was like, great. So gluten, not, not on the table. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I would just keep it out. It wasn't like a negotiation, an emotional roller coaster. It was like, great, gluten, not my friend. Bye. Um, I don't like the taste of soy, so soy was not like a difficult one. I was soy milk. I just changed it to something else. Soy can kind of push you more hypothyroid um, and suppress your thyroid um, hormone production. In terms of other things like dairy, I can have it here or there. Um, I would also say like people who do have seasonal allergies, that's a gut issue. So when I cleaned up my gut, my seasonal allergies went away. So mine was not a very calculated, like how you should do it. But, um, for example, like I went to Italy this summer and I was like in Bologna and I was like, I want to just like, I want the, <laughs> I want lasagna. <laughs> and I tried it and it felt okay. And, um, had different kinds of pastas in Italy for 10 days and was okay. And then I went to Amsterdam and had something and I was like, no, I am not okay with gluten. So cut it back out. Yeah, for sure. So with, with that said, I do want to get into some of those hormonal aspects of Hashimoto's. You started mentioning things like soy. Um, Are there while somebody is taking this journey and, you know, they get diagnosed with Hashimoto's and they're looking at these kind of root causes, mold, parasites, et cetera, what are those lifestyle practices or specific foods that could impact their thyroid hormones? Like even goitrogens or soy, you were mentioning some of those, but if we can dive deeper there. Yeah. So a lot of women get diagnosed with Hashimoto's as they're going through menopause, right? And the theory behind that is because there is a shift in estrogen, there's a decrease in estrogen, it causes this autoimmune flare-up. So if you're eating foods that can mimic estrogen, right, like soy, um, there's some thoughts that like it can suppress your thyroid further. Um, Dr. Jade Tita, he's, um, he's a naturopath male with Hashimoto's, which is not common. And his, um, I had him on the podcast and he was like, yeah, I was like pounding soy protein shakes, gaining weight, not feeling good, tired. He's like, I think that was one of the factors that triggered his Hashimoto's. Another lifestyle factor could be overtraining. So when you overtrain, you'll see your reverse T3 start to go up. And it's kind of like, the anti-thyroid hormone. So your thyroid gland will release um, two different hormones, one that's inactive and one that's active. T4 is inactive. T3 is active. T3 is like the gas. Um, And then T reverse T3 is like the anti T it's like the anti-gas. And when we overtrain, like if we're trying to work out two hours a day, six days a week without proper recovery, our reverse T3 will go up and um, we'll feel, that's kind of one of those places where you see someone who trains a lot, they're eating healthy, they might not be recovering enough. They look like they're doing all the right things, but they're hypothyroid. So usually their reverse T3 is elevated and you have to kind of dial down their overtraining. Some other things could be stress, right? So people will have an event, a loss, a death, a divorce. Very common, like the women I work with, I'm like, oh, you know, around 2021, what happened? They're like, oh, both my parents died, right? It kind of triggered that, that just the stress of it triggered that autoimmune condition. And then stress can come in the form of environmental load as well. A lot of Mold symptoms mimic Hashimoto symptoms. You're like, do I have mold? Do I have Hashimoto's? Do I have both? Um, and can really tank your mitochondria. The mold exposure can. So like those little powerhouses of the cells are just like <laughs> dragging. So, um, so yeah, 
So those would be some things I would think about. There's also certain gut infections that are tied to autoimmune triggers. Okay. Can we like, dive into those a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Like um, blastocystis hominis is one very common, but in the autoimmune population is tied to um, flaring up an autoimmune condition. H. pylori, which is a yeah. um, infection high up in the stomach. It causes like GERD reflux kind of symptoms, but it actually is like a little spiral shaped organism that kind of burrows and spirals into um, the stomach and drives your stomach acid down. Even though you're like burping and getting reflux, you're like, oh my God, why am I getting all these like maybe too much stomach acid feeling? It's actually driving your stomach acid down and then you don't digest your food and then you have slow motility. So that's a really common one and it's very commonly shared. So like you're treating yourself, you kiss your partner, your partner's not treating it. You're probably just getting it again. Um, Yersinia is another one. Um, And then there's also certain gut infections that can lead to like joint pain, um, joint-related autoimmune conditions. And all of those can get picked up on a GI map. So it's kind of cool to like, because a lot of women with Hashimoto's will have joint pain, right? Mm -hmm. Joint pain, muscle aches. So let's say you have bilateral knee pain and bilateral pain always gives a little bit of like a red flag because if you didn't have a clear mechanism of injury, like you didn't fall and hit both knees, why would both knees hurt, right? Is there is it truly biomechanical and you're going to physical therapy three times a week and you're getting massage and you're doing all the things? I would check someone's thyroid panel. And then I would probably check their gut and see if do they have some bacterial overgrowth or some gut infections that are can lead to that chronic joint pain versus seeing everything as biomechanical yeah. and just kind of wasting someone's time treating it. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting point saying, you know, if it is on both sides, what are the chances of you just yeah. suddenly hitting both sides, you know? So that's a good point. Now, how does somebody, you know, they, they have the Hashimoto's diagnosis, they're doing these lifestyle changes, they're getting gut testing, they're changing their diet. What kind of things do they do to monitor progress? And even um, do, you, do you do follow-up testing? How often? Stuff like that. Yeah. So I think it can look in different forms, right? So Let's say you've just been diagnosed, your doctor recommends thyroid meds. It takes about four to six weeks to have your thyroid meds kind of kick in and find an equilibrium. So you'd want to check and retest eight weeks after just to make sure your thyroid meds are dialed in properly. I would say that's more of a functional medicine approach. A conventional medicine approach is like, here's your meds. See you in six months, right? So that would be one thing to check. And, and you're checking all the thyroid hormones via blood test with that yes. one. Yeah. Um, and making sure the conversion is good from the inactive to the active form. Gotcha. I think another thing to check if you are going the gut route, which I would say probably every Hashimoto's woman should do, is doing a stool test, like a GI map, seeing what comes up, addressing it, and sometimes protocols to eradicate our 30 days average, sometimes sometimes 60 days, depending on the symptoms. And then you do like a rebuild phase, right? You got to like, if you just killed something, you probably killed some good stuff too. Well, now you need to rebuild the gut lining. Oh, glutamine, colostrum, using things to just um, help rebuild the gut lining. And then ideally you would do a retest might be six months later. It might be four months later, just to make sure what you were going after you actually eradicated. Um, Cause I think some people assume, Oh, well I took 30 days of these supplements. It's gotta be gone. It was a very laborious process. And then you retest and it's not. And so you, you need to like start to look at, okay, was there good compliance? Um, did their partner have something? Did their kids have something that is now getting reinfected? And was there something missed? So that would be in terms of like a gut approach. Other factors to look at, like how's your energy? 
So I'll give you my own example. Like when I am living in a moldy home, if I feel like I need to take a 2 p.m. nap, I know there's like something wrong. Um, or if I get like really thirsty and like my, and granted that happens with like change of season or like viral load, but like, I'm always like, okay, is there like (laughs) something going on mold wise? If my eczema flares up, which is very, very rare now, but I used to literally use my eczema as like, (laughs) there's something going on. Um, others, other things could be bloating, belching, gassy, farting. Like people assume like, oh yeah, burping and farting is normal. It's not. Um, yeah. Um, fatigue, hair loss. Can, can you do something that's like considered like kind of low grade exertion, like going for a walk? Can you do that and not be like totally exhausted? Right. So those are kind of the dial movers and it's different for everyone. Like I now don't have a big hair loss issue, but I have a girlfriend, like that is her thing. Like she's losing hair, something's off. So yeah, just looking at your symptoms, it's always great to write them down um, and see, okay, are things changing over time? That's true. That's true. So training, you started mentioning a little bit about, you know, if you can do some and without, you know, being completely wiped out, then you should. But in, in the cases of you know, someone just getting diagnosed, they felt like they got hit by a bus, fatigue. Um, what does exercise look like for those individuals? Because, you know, that is vital for having a healthy body. Do you do you say go ahead and exercise or do you say just do what you can? What What's that look like? Yeah, I think if someone is newly diagnosed, just starting thyroid medication, doesn't have their inflammatory load managed, hasn't started to look at like gut health or anything else, root cause stuff. I would say like, yeah, try and get outside, get some sun, try to get some steps in. Also, depending on your starting point, because I do have women, they're like, I get 2000 steps a day. And you're like, well, I'm not going to push you up to 8,000 8, straight away, right? We're going to build slow. I do think it's important to maintain your muscle mass with Hashimoto's. Um, just being hypothyroid, we have less muscle tissue on the bone because muscle tissue needs thyroid hormone as well. And so that could look like little dial movers, right? It obviously depends how flared up someone is, how bad their symptoms are, but could someone do five deadlifts, take a two minute break and then grab two weights and just kind of march in place? Like that might be it for the day in terms of training. That's like seven minutes of working out. Like, is that possible? I think probably 90% of women could do something like that, right? Does it have to be a 30 minute, 45 minute training session? No, but like start somewhere, give yourself little wins. You know, the more muscle you have, the more calories you'll burn at rest, the more muscle you have, the more mitochondria you'll have. Those mitochondria, the little powerhouses is the cell. So you know, I did an experiment once where I only walked for three weeks because I was like, I want to feel what some of these women coming into my program feel like. Like they, you know, this because I hadn't, I think this was like 2021. I hadn't felt the fatigue in a long time that they were talking about. And after a week, I was like, I'm so depressed. What's oh my the gosh. Of life? Like, what's what is this all for? And granted, it was like COVID, right? So I was like, maybe yeah, like yeah. COVID, but I was like getting an hour walk, you know, looking at the mountains in the sunshine, in nature. Two weeks into it, it was a three week experiment. I was like, taking an afternoon nap. I was like, oh my God, what's wrong oh, with me? Wow. I'm holding the house. And then three weeks hit and it was like in my calendar and it was like, okay, back to kettlebell workouts. And I literally did a 20 minute workout. It was like, not a lot for me. It's like some deadlifts and pressing some swings, like my three favorite moves. In 20 minutes, I was like, that was what was missing, was getting my heart rate up, work, you know, getting the blood flowing, working on the muscle tissue, stimulating the muscle tissue, and nothing else changed. My diet didn't change. All I did was not lift a weight. So I would ask for the women who are fatigued, 
can you start, start to sneak in some weight training to give you these little doses of energy? It doesn't have to be an hour. It doesn't have to be 40 minutes. It doesn't even have to be 30 minutes. Like I did a 20 minute workout this morning before my kids woke up and I was like, oh, they, and I totally did not want to do it, but I did it. It's like, thank God I did that. Um, yeah. And, and I, I mean, going off of that, I love the approach of, you know, cardio is good for, um, a lot of reasons, but as far as stressors on the body too, kind of dialing that back and substituting that with more weights and more muscle centered kind of workouts just only makes sense from even a stressor standpoint. Yeah. I also think if someone loves to run, like I want someone to do what they love to do. Right. So I would, or even like, we'll take someone that's like a little more beginner, like I have these women that are like, I love to go on an hour walk, but like 30 minutes in my like back starts to hurt. And like what I think is my SI joint. And I'm like, okay, so let's start to build you a strength program. Let's do one day a week, work up to two. And then eventually it's three days a week, 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day. So it's really only an hour a week of picking up weights. And now let's see you walk and they will be able to go further because things are integrated. They're stronger. They can have the endurance to go longer and then they get to do what they love to do. So it's not either or, right? Like running or weights. Sure. Sure. Yeah. While still managing recovery. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, you just, you don't want to be like 40 minutes on the treadmill every day and that's it, you know? And like you were saying, just doing the walking, you were, you're experiencing a lot more fatigue and, and probably some symptoms you didn't really like. And that just makes sense because the body likes diversity and the body needs diversity. The gut needs dietary diversity. It's just about integrating it all. So no, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And I think even like newer research coming out now is like, there's so many benefits to zone two training where you're like training, but you can still like talk. I think when a lot of women are starting to do cardio, like how many women have been told like their husband's like, stop complaining about wanting to lose weight. Just go put on your shoes and go for a run. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from women coming into the program and they go run, but they're not, they're running too fast for what they're conditioned for. Right. Because they see these people like, yeah. stuff, and, um, and they go out too hard, too fast. They like tank out, they're exhausted like to get to train into zone two training, you're actually going way slower than probably what you think. So yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Well, were there any other topics you wanted to talk about as far as um, Hashimoto's recovery, lifestyle factors, anything like that you think that we missed? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. Um, there's kind of this big movement now around like nervous system retraining. Yeah. Into like a lot of women are kind of stuck in this fight or flight, probably because there's too much doing and not enough asking of help. But I think the second piece is sometimes we're doing this nervous system retraining in like a seated or standing position. Well, what if you actually used your workout to like create a stressor, a load, right? You're picking up a load, your heart rate's going up, your breath count is going up and it's a stressor, and then you use your rest break to retrain your nervous system. So all the things that you would do during nervous system retraining to drop you back down into the calm, parasympathetic, everything's okay, like humming, putting your tongue on the roof of your mouth, vibrating the palate of the upper palate, um, long, slow exhales, singing, that all helps you drop you out of that fight or flight. You did that during your rest breaks. Right. So you're literally like, if you think about the high performers, I'm going to just take like Navy SEAL, right? They're like sniper shot. And then they like drop back down into the calm, right? Like there's like acute awareness under stress, um, mental acuity, and then they're like calm. Well, what if you could train that within yourself? So you're like picking up a weight, you're like, you know, let's get after it. And then you're using your rest break and you hum, you try to extend the exhale to twice as long as the inhale. So like an eight count breath out, four count breath in, like you're literally training your nervous system, but you're not doing it sitting 
meditating, like yeah. doing high movements, right? You are using your workout as your nervous system reset. So some I, of that- I love that. Yeah. So we we do that in Thyroid Strong um, because I think this messaging of don't stress, de-stress, avoid stress, like, come on. <laughs> it's like, it's like- I mean, Even if you harbor like a good- mentality, there are environmental stressors that you don't even have control over. So yeah. 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 And then what I don't know if it was Gandhi or no, it wasn't Gandhi. Dalai Lama. He was like, yeah, you know, you think you're like in a good meditative state and just go visit your (laughs) (laughs) in-laws. See if you can maintain that calm. So, you know, stress is inevitable. So how can we show up, lean into it, not sit and ruminate. I think that's when we get into that chronic fight or flight where we're just like ruminating and not taking action and then train our nervous system in a moment where there is stress to drop into the calm. Um, so yeah, I think not a lot of people talk about that. A lot of people talk about nervous system reset, but they don't talk about it and like using it in your day to day from, uh, when you do have stress. So yeah. yeah. No, that's a great tip. I, I actually really like the integration with that into your kind of training regimen. I, I love that. Yeah. So with that said, I think that's a perfect place to go ahead and wrap up the episode. So thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you to our audience for tuning in today. I know you will absolutely love this conversation just as much as I did. So thanks again for tuning in. And we'll see you in the next one. The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, the Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.